first reading today is taken from Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 to 24, and 35 to 43. When Jesus had again crossed over by the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him. Then one of the synagogue leaders, named Jairus, came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. And the second reading comes from Matthew, oops, chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is the word of the Lord. Again. Good morning. Great to see you all this morning. My name's Sarah. Um, you don't have to be called Sarah to be involved in the service this morning, but it helps. Um, and uh, I've been here at St. Francis since September, worshipping with my husband, Christopher, who's out with the young people this morning, and our two girls, Annabella and Ariana. So uh, it's great to be with you. We love it here. So thank you for making us feel so welcome. And uh, looking forward to getting into this scripture together this morning. But as we do, let's just take a moment to pray. Just to quieten our hearts before God to recognize that this same Jesus who raised Jairus's daughter from the dead is here with us by his spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Come, Holy Comforter. Come, the one who brings revelation of the word of God and gives us grace to live for you. Amen. So here we come to the second of these Beatitudes, these blessings that Jesus spoke of in his Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it, give me a wave if you were here last week and heard John open the series. 
Yeah, quite a lot of you. So um, you will have heard him kick off with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Jean gave us some thoughts last week on what this word blessed or blessed means. And he said it means sort of happy or it can mean fortunate. But I discovered this week that in the Greek word was sometimes used as a sort of salutation. So almost in the way in which we would use congratulations when someone had just received good news. But he, what he says is congratulations, you who mourn. That's a strange thing, isn't it? That is difficult for us to get our heads around. What can it mean? What does Jesus mean? How do we make sense of this? We're clearly going to have to dig a little deeper. But we're living in a world, aren't we, that is obsessed with the quick fix, the instantaneous. We're used to receiving everything straight away. You know, once you had to wait uh, several days at least before you received a letter, and it was probably carried on horseback. And then came the introduction of the Royal Mail and the first class stamp, and you have to wait a little bit less time for your letters now, although I did hear of one that was 89 years from when it was posted to when it was delivered. I think that's unusual. Uh, and then, you know, after the kind of invention of that kind of mail, then we have the invention of email. And we can get mail almost in instantaneously, messages come to us, and people expect an almost instantaneous response as well. But that still wasn't fast enough. We wanted it now, now, now. So we came up with WhatsApp. Other messaging services are available. Uh, but with real-time notification, tech has made life very fast-paced. But still we find ourselves frustrated sometimes. Anyone else kind of lament the wheel of woe, that little kind of spooling thing that happens when you're waiting for something to download, or vent your frustration when your super-fast broadband is just not fast enough? But the thing about the kingdom of God is that it has a different set of values and a different timescale. The values of the kingdom of God mean that poor and powerless and sad people and those whose lives just look a bit messed up, really, find a place of blessing. The kingdom of God is one in which the oppressed and the weary and the wretched are welcomed. It's a place where the first are last and the last are first. It's a topsy-turvy kingdom, or is it the right way up? The values of the kingdom are radically different from the values of our current culture. Our culture celebrates wealth and pleasure and success, and it pursues those things relentlessly, worshipping at their feet. Now, something that I think is really important for us to hear as we think about what Jesus meant when he was saying, blessed are those who mourn. We know that God is a good father. He is a perfect heavenly father who loves to give good gifts to his children. His desire for his children is that we should live rich and healthy and prosperous lives. That's his original design for humanity, that we should all prosper in every way. 
And the Beatitudes have sometimes been misread, and sometimes they've been presented as something that we should aspire to. And there are some things in the Beatitudes that we certainly should aspire to. We're going to be coming to those in the weeks ahead. But some commentators have suggested that perhaps we should try to be poor and sad and powerless. But I don't think that that is what Jesus is saying at all. So think about it. You know, if, if poverty was something good and would cause blessing, then we would be doing the poor a disservice whenever we tried to help in any way. No, we know, don't we, that poverty is an evil. And Jean spoke about this last week. It's something that keeps people in misery and oppression. And the Bible is clear that as people who follow Jesus, we should do all that it's in our power to do to alleviate it. And Jesus isn't saying that grief is a good thing. I expect that many of us, if, if not all, have experienced grief in one form or another. And it is among the most painful and desolate experiences of our lives. Perhaps you are here this morning and you're in the midst of raw grief. And you're thinking, there's no way that this is blessed. No, grief and poverty and sickness were not part of God's plan for us. They came into the world as a result of sin. They entered our experience when we rejected the loving rule of a heavenly father in favor of self-rule. When we gave the authority that God had over our lives to the evil one. They entered the world when Adam and Eve fell and when we have followed their lead ever since. But please don't give up and get depressed. There's good news coming. Are there any gardeners here this morning? Oh, a couple of us. One or two. Well, I loved being in my garden this week with the sun shining. You can tell by the state of my fingernails. But one of the things I love about gardening is that often I feel God speaks to me through that process, and I start to see something more of the character of God through it. So in November, in the freezing cold, in the darkness, in the pouring rain... I was out in my garden putting these kind of little brown shriveled things into a bowl of muck. I was there with my secateurs cutting my roses back so that they just looked like a stick coming out of the ground. And now I have tulips and I have roses and it all looks amazing. There's growth and there's beauty and there's new life. And this, for me, is a very inadequate picture of what Jesus does in our lives. Look at the cross. We've just come through the season of Easter. We thought about the cross. And the cross was the place of ultimate devastation and loss and suffering and death and the end of hope. It was a horrifying place. And yet Jesus turns it around and it becomes the very place, the very action that is the seedbed of redemption, of new life, of new hope, of resurrection. There's a wonderful line in the funeral service which says, you are able to bring joy out of grief 
and life out of death. And I would always say that line with real emphasis because it tells us what Jesus is like. It tells us that there is no situation that is hopeless in his eyes. It points to the hope of resurrection. And this is something that we need reminding of when we find ourselves in the pit of grief. This is what happens when we bring our grief to Jesus, when we hold it before him, when we come in honest lament. This is what he can do. Now, I know myself, and many others can testify, and Sarah has testified as she shared some of her stories this morning, that God is indeed close to the brokenhearted. That's one of the things he promises, that he is close to the brokenhearted. In fact, the first thing that Jesus said when he bought his manifesto, what he was there to do, was he said he came to bind up the brokenhearted. Maybe you have known something of the comfort of his presence at a time of grief. I remember a friend of mine called Penny, and she was struck down with cancer all too early in life. And I remember, because it spoke to me so powerfully, the joy that she experienced in the midst of her grief. I remember her testimony to experiencing the presence of God like never before as she walked through that time. And yes, I remember her speaking with authority of being truly blessed. I also remember her funeral when we knew so powerfully the reality of an eternity with Jesus that is without pain or sickness or death. That is redemption. That is what it means to know blessing in grief. Now, a word about timing, because the values and the timing of the kingdom of God are different to those that we know in this world. And over to Jairus and his agonizing story. Now, Jairus is a person in in a place of desperation. He is desperate for an answer now. There is no time to lose. This is a priority emergency call. His daughter is at the point of death. And when Lucy read us the passage this morning, you may have noticed that there was a little chunk of Mark's gospel that we missed out in the middle. And in that part, we hear about how Jesus, when he was on his way to visit Jairus' daughter, was waylaid by somebody else in need. But it seems that Jesus didn't triage the cases. Because the lady in front of him, the lady who interrupted him, had suffered for many years And although her suffering had been awful and it had restricted her life, she had learned to live with it. And yet Jesus stops and gives her his full attention. He spends time with her. He listens to her story. And by the time he is ready to move on, having healed her, it's too late. It doesn't doesn't make sense, does it? The the message comes from Jairus' house that it's too late. Don't bother the teacher anymore. The daughter has died. 
I wonder, have you ever had that experience where you have prayed, where you have called on the name of Jesus, where you have waited and watched and hoped? You've longed for breakthrough. And others around you seem to be getting their prayers answered. You know, they're getting the car parking space when they go to Tesco's. And you think, why, Lord? There's no change in my circumstances. That feels familiar to me. And you think, what are you doing, God? Why aren't you coming now? Can't you see the urgency? And we're in good company when we cry out to God with those things, because the Psalms are full of that. So often the psalmist says, how long, O Lord? Can you not hear me? Do you not care? Why are you taking so long? Jairus' little girl is dead, and it is the end of hope. Only it's not. Have you ever noticed that Jesus wrecks every funeral he ever attends? Like 100% of the funerals he goes to, he wrecks by bringing that person back to life. That's more evidence for us of the fact that death and grief are not in his plan for us. Jesus came preaching the kingdom and demonstrating it, showing us what the rule and reign of God looks like, showing us that those things were not designed for us to go through. And Jairus' daughter is brought back to life. The kingdom of God breaks in. Well, that's all very well for Jairus, you might think. But what about me? What about us? Now, I haven't experienced a resurrection yet. I've prayed for one. I believe it happens. I know it happens today. But most of us haven't had that experience. God's timing is different to ours. He sees things in the light of eternity. And so often we live with such a finite view of time. We see the here and now as all there is. When Jesus came, he lived among us, he died, he rose again, and the kingdom of God arrived forcefully in power. Nothing would ever be the same again. Things fundamentally changed because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The work of undoing all of the power of sin and death and the devil and their destructive effects in the world were put irreversibly in motion. And yet, we don't see that fully realized now. Notice that in this beatitude, Jesus says, Blessed are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. It's in the future tense. There is a yet-to-come element of the kingdom. Yes, we can know the comfort of God in the midst of pain now. But one day, we will know the comfort of God in the absence of pain. We have the promise of Jesus that the day is coming when all will be right again. And if we can trust and wait and live for eternity now, there will be so many more marshmallows to come. In fact, Peter, who was one of the disciples who witnessed the resurrection of Jairus' daughter, who was in the room when Jesus performed that miracle, he writes in his letter a few years later, 
that for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And then he goes on to explain that these have come to shape us for eternity. You know, I've heard it said that our suffering can either make us bitter or better. And when we bring it before God, when we place it in his hands, he can use us to make us better, to shape character in us, to help us to see more of what he is like. And Jesus says himself, in this world, you will have trouble. But I have overcome the world. Here is this promise that our present experience isn't the totality of reality. And that can be really hard for us to see. That's what it means to live by faith and not by sight. Time and again in Scripture, there is a reminder that there may be grief in the short term, but we have a better hope. In Psalm 30, we read this. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Who sows in tears? Well, those planting bulbs in November, but far more profoundly, those that are hungry sow with tears. Those who don't have enough to eat. If you're hungry, it is an act of faith to place a seed in the ground instead of in your mouth. Because you want to eat what you're planting, that's why you weep. But you do it because you know that there will be a day of harvest, that the harvest will be greater, that that one seed that you plant will be multiplied. This is what it is to live for eternity. This is how we resist the pull of the world and go after, uh, resist its pull to go after the things it offers, to pursue success and comfort and pleasure. This is how we resist the pull to try and paper over the brokenness in our lives by filling it with stuff or with alcohol, or with workahol, or whatever that comfort may be. Those comforts remind me of the comforters in the story of Jairus' daughter. There were people in the room who were wailing and mourning. But when Jesus tries to inject hope into that room, they scoff and laugh. They have empty comfort to offer. But Jesus... The God of all comfort, always his comfort has hope. Because there is no situation about which he doesn't have hope. Whatever situation you find yourself in this morning, I can confidently say that God has not lost hope over that situation. That he is a God of redemption and he can bring good things, good fruit out of those things. We recognize that the day is coming when pain will end and there will be healing and life. We trust that what we sow in seeking Jesus and his kingdom first 
in seeking and following after his values will come back to us in infinitely greater measure than we can ever imagine. And it's the work of living by faith and not by sight. And there is true comfort in that. Can I just lead us in prayer? I just want to give you an opportunity today to bring your grief, to bring your mourning to the foot of the cross, to bring it before Jesus, the one who serves every single situation redemptively. To hold it in his presence and release it to him. Father, I thank you that you know every person in this room, that they are known to you by name, that their grief and pain are not hidden from you, but you see them, and that you are very near. Lord, I pray that you would draw near now, that you would bring comfort, that you would bring healing. Lord, that you would restore hope to every hopeless situation and every person in despair this morning, Lord, that you would restore the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Lord, we praise you that you are alive, that you live forevermore, and that those who put their hope in you will know resurrection, will not be disappointed. Come, Lord Jesus, minister your loving kindness, speak tenderly to us, and give us that sure and certain hope of eternity. Amen.